Welcome to the Reinventing Education Podcast. I'm Rob McLeod. In this episode, we're going to approach things a little bit differently. We've invited a previous guest of ours back, Malcolm Giles, from episode 65. If you haven't heard it yet, go back, check that out. Really interesting discussion with Malcolm. He does some really interesting work. He's a professor in Germany, and he basically does integral teacher training. So he works with students who are going to become teachers and provides them with an integral or holistic approach to better understand the nature of the profession that they're getting into. At the end of that episode, Malcolm had a lot of questions for us still, and all three of us were interested in continuing the conversation. But Malcolm gave us an interesting invitation. Brennan and I, at times, can really lack social skills, and here we are 71 episodes into this thing, and we haven't really introduced ourselves yet. So Malcolm's invitation worked as a nice introduction, an opportunity, if you will, for Brennan and I to talk a little bit more about ourselves, where some of our motivations came from, our story, if you will, and you know some of the really big picture things that we're thinking about that, to some degree, we haven't been able to get into yet throughout our conversations, although we've certainly touched on some of these themes. So we really appreciate Malcolm taking the initiative and giving us an opportunity to be the guests and have someone else walk us through the conversation. Enjoy. So I thought just just to frame it then, I mean, like personally, I'm I'm kind of really interested to get to know a little bit more about, about you know, your roles in in education, what, what you're up to. And what drew you into teaching? You know, where do you feel you're, you come alive in, in the teaching world, in the education world? I'm also sort of drawn to try and get a little bit more about your perspectives on the current state of, of the, the school that, you, that you're working in. You know, just explore that a little bit in relation to the, the model that you've been presenting through the podcast. And, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm very, I'm very interested in, you know, what... what I know it's a difficult one, isn't it? What's calling from the future about where you want to take this conversation? What other perspectives, you know, either from students, from staff, from politicians, from people in men's work, whatever could could is calling to take that conversation perhaps to new 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 territory? Because yeah, I mean, you know, we got to stay right from the start. You know, you make you offering a fantastic resource. For an exploration of this, this really, you know, you know, um, essential topic, isn't it? And one of the things that you know we feel, you know, perhaps we all feel like the world is changing so quickly. You know, what's coming online with technology? What's coming online with what kids are getting their heads into and getting access to? There's all this stuff going on in the Middle East. There's cryptocurrency, you know, poised to take over the financial world. We're in this stage of massive transition and education sometimes feels like a you know and perhaps perhaps should be you know a still place in a turning world <clears throat> but how is it responding to these to these changes has it got that flexibility has it got that perspective taking you know or, or could it have should it have where are we at and let, so let's start off then with giving you unless you've got any comeback on what what i've just said huh? um Give you give you two give you three minutes each to say you know how did you get into teaching say a little bit about what you do how you got into teaching what's the current state of play where you where you are I was going to let Rob go first he's <laughs> he's the eloquent one here I actually fought against being a teacher for quite a while it was okay to be kind of a an EAL teacher I did it to kind of part time and just teaching a little bit of English here EAL 
in English as an additional language and, you know, I enjoyed that, but I didn't want to commit to that being kind of my thing because I'd come through uh, art and I'd always been interested in arts and music and kind of felt that I would go in that direction. Drama as well, huh? A little bit. I got more into writing kind of plays and stuff later, but um, my degree was in visual arts and I'd always been in bands and stuff. But um, yeah, more and more, I kind of just got interested in each, each kind of year I did the English language teaching, I got a little bit more details and I realized that there was much more to it and I was hitting the limitations. I was in Japan, I was teaching like three to 15 year olds and they were and it was very much uh, vocabulary based and quite really quite simple. So I, I, I could just naturally feel that I was trying to push beyond that. So like, are there more games we could play to practice this vocabulary? Is there a way to make this more complex? I took the leap into teacher training and thought, yeah, this is it now. And then of course you just see that there's even more. And then you get into the classroom and I started teaching year six in England, which is the end of primary and is notoriously geared towards the tests at the end. And so I'm teaching towards these tests, but again, something like is like you can add more what can you do here so i'm running these projects with the kids and each time i'm doing that i find out more and realizing this is even more complex than i'd ever thought and it was more political and it was and there was it was just every single child in your class was totally different and it somehow felt that maybe the systems that were in were working against what we were trying to do so after four years of that i moved to an international school which runs the ib and yeah, again, this is amazing. This is wonderful. It's inquiry-based learning. I'm teaching eight-year-olds and we're designing our own experiments and inquiring for you know, several weeks into family relationships or uh, artistic stuff. But then it's same, you know, you, after you've been doing it for a few years, you realize, oh, this, this is beyond what I could ever, the complexity of what's possible is beyond... And I guess that's when, you know, myself and Rob were teaching in a school and this is the conversation going back and forth. Like, And he brought this idea to me of the, I guess, the spiral dynamics that's based on, that, that we based our system on. And I'm a skeptic by nature. So, you know, it took several years for me to take some of these things on board. But little by little, we started working together and we kind of came up with this, this idea of three stages plus this, this fourth integral stage and so you know and we stayed in the podcast and that's feeding mm-hmm. back into the teaching as well so yeah it's just been a story of about two decades of trying to get my head around this uh, little you know ever increasing uh, understanding and non-understanding of the complexity of this system and I could go on but that's been more than we, three uh, minutes. You mean the, the education system as a whole? You're, you're ah, but but people humans and what people, we right, right, what, right, what right, we are right. interested in and what we can do and how the system works and doesn't work and so and has you know, has has an, has the integral approach i mean since rob kind of got you interested and involved in it i mean has it has it helped to give some uh, means of accessing that complexity because i mean obviously that's what it's purported to to do isn't it i mean as a resource that is what it is capable of doing i guess i've got a a very systematic kind of mind not in a kind of mathematical way i'm not uh, 
I'm not some math whiz, but I do like to see how parts of systems fit together and how they work. And so this was just a really another, another really useful way to frame that we didn't have. So I had systems for teaching maths and systems for teaching English and and for um, you know we use writing cycles in English and we have um, all kinds of frameworks and kind of metacognition if you like but this was a big gap I didn't have this kind of idea that oh actually within the schools that you're teaching there isn't just one school like the reason why this person or this school is teaching in this way is because they've got this traditional or blue mindset and then the reason why your school in England that you were teaching at taught in this way is because it has this mainstream mindset and then you're in a in a more progressive leaning school but it's not as progressive as the democratic school down the street so it's given me a framework which for the way my mind works is very useful um sense sense making isn't it yeah making sense of that and sort of saying aha okay that that kind of does make sense doesn't it when you see it in those terms but as a Um, skeptic knowing that it doesn't give you the whole story and uh you know the the map is not the terrain is one of the ways I've heard it described. Okay. And what about, what about you, Rob? What got you into teaching and, and how are you feeling now about your, where you are in your career and what sort of similar experiences have you had through the, through the teaching ranks? I guess if we start at the beginning, my early experience in school is actually quite a positive one in that I was very lucky to go to uh, a public school, primary school, kindergarten to grade eight, that in retrospect, I can see now is a bit of an anomaly. Overall, I think the Ontario, I grew up in Canada, so the Ontario system, uh, I do think is actually quite a strong system. When I look back at it, and having been someone who taught it, I think it's quite a strong system. That said, the school in particular that I went to school as a younger child My grade five and six teacher won an award for best science math technology teacher in all of Canada. I had teachers who had won provincial awards and all these sorts of things. And awards are one thing, but I can certainly say that my experience with them in the classroom was definitely very impactful. And I had some really strong teachers and had a really good public school experience. And I can remember, you know, starting an environmental club when I was in grade four and I had no idea what I was doing. But it was like, oh, I, well, I want to teach these other kids in my class about why it's important to feed the birds and why we should be recycling and all, you know, all these sorts of things. And it was like, from a very early age, some component of something that I had interest in. Long story short, I was considering wanting to be a teacher that requires a university education in Ontario. And the year I was graduating high school, there was this weird thing where grade 13 was being cut. And the following year was going to be grade 12. In the process of that, they cut funding for several of these grade 13 classes, which basically meant that the classes I had intended to take so that I could go to university now don't exist, meaning I can't go to university. And if I wish to go back, it's now going to take me at least two years to track back to get the prerequisites to take the final year classes. I was like, I'm not spending another two years in high school to do what like essentially should have been handed to me had there not been all these cuts. It took me down a weird career trajectory. I first started doing horticulture, landscape design, went to a really Mm -hmm. prestigious uh, school in Niagara Falls for that. But then after a year, 
oddly enough, I was 21 and you're old enough to apply as a mature student <laughs> to university and bypass all of the bureaucracy. Uh, I just needed to get, I forget, like 80% on, I think it was three or maybe four online credits. And I got that easily, got into school. In, was it was it at that point that you, you kind of had the idea that you wanted to become a teacher or was it just still, still a bit of an open playing field at that point? Yeah, and, and it's funny because I, at first, so my first semester, I went from someone who's like, you know, a B level student throughout most of my high school experience to making the Dean's honors list in my first um, semester at university and continued through the rest of my time. And it opened my eyes to thinking, oh, well, maybe I could pursue an even higher level of education. Maybe being a professor is not out of the question, but I, I didn't have really clear goals at that time. I didn't have a clear vision of it. I was still very open to what might happen. Finished university and I just decided I need a year off. I've been in school for a while now with this horticulture program and then all, you know, getting my undergrad. And then that one year turned into about three years where I got involved. It just so happened one of my dr other dream jobs was to be a radio DJ. I fell into being a radio DJ unexpectedly. Um, and then after three years, that is like, okay, time to go back and get the teaching degree. And I think I was 29 or 30 when I got that. And yeah, started teaching in the Ontario system for three years. And it was just the worst possible time to become a teacher. Three main factors. One, basically, there are too many graduates flooding the market, because in the five years previous, all of the universities realized, hey, this is a pretty big cash grab for us. The number of graduates was at an all-time high. Teachers who were experienced were retiring slightly early, but then coming back as supply teachers. And in theory, you'd think, oh, that's great. They're freeing up jobs for new teachers. But the problem was that you could only get one of those jobs if you were already a supply teacher. And all the supply teacher positions were now flooded with experienced teachers. So new people were having a hard time even getting their foot in the door in order to get something. And then uh, finally, yeah, just general cutbacks. Student enrollment in my area was down considerably. The work, like basically everything was working against me, but I was like one of 20 people I knew who was lucky enough to get some work. That said, by my third year, I think I was spread across 18 classes at three different schools during the week and like running to teach one lesson of grade two science at this school well, the other teacher teaches the other four lessons of it a week and then run over to another school. And it was just chaos. And it was like, I'm going to quit. This is not what I thought I was getting into. This is horrible. I'm filling gaps for really bad scheduling and, and I'm not enjoying this and it's just not sustainable. Took what I thought would be two years. I thought I'm going to go teach in Germany. I found jobs uh, at an international job fair and thought, well, I'll take two years, see if things change here in two years time or who knows what might happen and that who knows what might happen is what happened because those two years are now going on nine years worked in germany for five and uh now third year here in belgium working in more or less international school environments so it feels it feels like yeah you found your feet you found your your profession you found where you feel alive and in some way fulfilled, let's say not, maybe not completely when are we ever, but, but it, it's in that sort of uh, zone. 
And what, 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 I mean, just coming back to Brendan, you know, when you're talking about education or the life of a teacher, what, what gets you excited, Brendan, at the moment when you, when you, you know, does anything get you excited or what gets you excited in particular when you're talking about education or even like your vision of, of how education could become or what have you seen and experienced that's getting you excited? So we talk a lot about the big picture stuff. And one of the reasons we wanted to do the podcast was to look at the big picture. We felt that a lot of, um, what we were seeing and talking about in school was was very much day-to-day and it's important stuff but the interesting thing is now while we're talking about this big picture stuff I moved out of the classroom and into the curriculum coordinator's role and in in an IB school that's kind of the person that oversees pretty much everything to do with teaching and learning in the school so the principal will still do you know some budgeting and some that maybe they'll do some timetabling, some hiring, and they'll liaise with parents. But the coordinator is the person who develops the curriculum and works with teachers. So the last couple of years, that's that's been really interesting for me because I get to meet with maybe eight to 10 different teachers per day in different groupings and organize professional development and, and essentially working with them. And even just today, I was working with them um, my boss, Dwayne, who, if you're a listener of the podcast, you will have heard him in a couple of episodes back. Super nice guy. And we get on really well. And, and we've got a vice principal, Steve, who works with us. And the three of us were looking at the action plan. And again, being a systems kind of person, you know, quite exciting to look at an action plan and, re- and think that this is the next five years of the school that it's not just some words on a piece of paper. These are all ideas that have come from the staff and from discussions and then you can take those back in and have discussions and make plans and uh, implement these ideas all in service of being better teachers and trying to get our heads around like I said before this incredibly complex system the IB system you mean huh the IB system is part of it it is a more complex take on what you would see in the mainstream and we've talked about this a little bit before but moving away from that idea of any kind of prescribed way of teaching and just being like what actually do those people in the class benefit from in their lives and and um, you know I did a workshop on assessment with the parents a few weeks ago one of the things I was trying to get across to them is you know you have a curriculum document and you have uh, 150 different statements about reading or maths written down but that that doesn't really tell you what to do no matter how long you've been teaching and if you're actually if you've got your eyes and ears open and if you're talking to the kids and talking to the parents and reading what's going on and being part of a community every single day is different and every single way you interpret that curriculum or or even if you just use it as a jumping off point as a lot of inquiries are so I think that's really what I'm interested in, in kind of like getting down into the minutiae of, of working with many different people and many different opinions who, who all, no matter if they're more traditionally minded, more progressive, uh, whether they're able to talk about that stuff or whether they're completely unaware that that framework exists, what matters is that uh, everybody's got a very similar aim. And for me, with that framework in my head, that's where... I can try and bring people together and, and, and bring ideas that are coming from totally different places without, right, right. without saying any of them are, are wrong, just weighing them yeah. up for what works best for our context. So 
yeah, down in the weeds, in the in the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty. That's where I uh, kind of like to be. Well, it's, it sounds a little bit, doesn't it, Rob? A little bit sort of spiral wizardry. Huh? That that you you when you have that sort of um, that model, that resource to 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 frame and to identify that that this you know elements of this complexity, and then as you know, Brendan's saying, you know, he's a bit of a kind of a bridge builder and a translator and, uh, you know, wherever people are coming from, he's not going to take it personally, in a sense. It's not going to lead to any critical kind of differences of opinion. What, what, what any comments or questions you have for, for Brendan on what he's shared? Well, I think what I would add to it from my own side, and I think this is where there's some overlap with Brendan and I, uh, Brendan's been great to expand my systemic thinking. He's, uh, he's really helped me to see the impact of systems at place. And I think when Brendan and I teased out this idea of the three kinds of school, traditional, mainstream, and progressive, it really helped me to shift from this idea of there being one right way or the idea of good, like doing school well. Because, you know, even just a few years ago, like at the tail end of Brendan and I working together, I think on some level there was still, we were still bringing our own biases to the table in terms yeah. of what we wanted school to look like. We were doing the thing we're kind of complaining about the other people doing, which is like, ah, they've already got their agenda and they're fixed in their ways and they're just, you know, they're going with this when really they should be going with the thing we're suggesting. And, you know, certainly I look back on that with some humility and we had some things right and some things wrong at the same time. But having brought this map to the table, now I can see that, oh, you know, it's, I used this analogy the other week. It's like that Indian parable of the people touching blind people or blindfolded people touching the different parts of the elephant. And it's like, oh, the one touching the leg thinks an elephant's like a tree. The one touching the tail thinks it's, you know, like a rope. The one touching the ear thinks an elephant is like, uh, a paper fan. And it's like, well, each of those are partially true. Each of those yeah. are correct. And I think what is happening, you know, to extend that metaphor or that analogy, it's like, well, let's pretend the progressive person's touching the leg and the mainstream person's touching the tail and the more traditional leaning person might be touching the ear. It's like, well, the elephant itself, though, is good education or doing education well. And at the end of the day, you can spend time debating the leg and the tail and the ear all you want. But at the core, the reason you're fighting or fighting against or resisting or pushing for something is, you know, I do give people the benefit of the doubt, which is that you are trying to do what you think is right in this context. For myself personally, you know, I, I was strictly in the classroom for about the first five years of my career and then entered into kind of like year leader roles and curriculum coordinator type roles in our previous school. That was really interesting because that shift from just, I'm using air quotes, just mm -hmm. being a teacher to getting into like the lowest rungs of leadership within a school, certainly not the level of a vice principal or principal, but having that peek behind the veil and going like, oh, actually there's like this like alternate universe happening in this same building 
Oh yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've been completely blinded by just the classroom level stuff that's happening. Yeah. Now that I'm sitting in meetings with the heads, vice heads, other year leaders, this sort of thing, it's like, Oh, I didn't realize there's this matrix happening around our classrooms. Mm. And in many ways, I now see that this matrix is far more impactful than me to a large degree than me just focusing on the being a teacher or that classroom level. And I think that really made a huge switch for me because I no longer just thought of education or my role in schools or my teaching as being what Rob McLeod as Mr. McLeod is doing with the other 20, 25 kids in the room. It's like, oh, my sense of working in schools now includes this larger idea of the school itself is this ecosystem happening around my classroom or rather my classroom's like an expression of this larger system. The longer I'm teaching, the more I'm interested in how schools work, arguably now more so than how to have a high functioning classroom. That's not to say my interest in the classroom being functioning well has diminished or disappeared, not the case, but rather my attention and interest moving forward is more in terms of that bigger picture of, of the school-wide matrix ecosystem. Well, I mean, this, this idea of an, of an ecosystem, I mean, to, to, to what extent in, in your, both your experiences, this, you know, is it a, a kind of self-contained ecosystem or are, are, are our roots, tentacles feeling out into society, into the rest of the world? You know, in many ways, I've always thought of a school is a kind of microcosm, isn't it, of the society in which it, it's located, that, that you know, we're going to be training children, giving children knowledge so that they can then take their part on the bigger stage, take their place on the bigger stage. You know, and school is a kind of training ground for that. But, you know, in many ways, what, you know, I started off saying, you know, in what crucial ways is it a reflection of that bigger reality? You know, is it is it a self-sustaining kind of ecosystem, a law in a sense unto itself? In what ways is it reaching out and feeling into wider territory of what's going on in society, supporting what children are bringing from that outside world to make sense of it, like we've been talking about, you know, making sense of what's going on, how to develop uh, wider perspectives more inclusive perspectives if that's if that we feel is what it takes so yeah I've, I, it's kind of like a seem to be a clear question in what ways is this ecosystem reaching out into the big the wider world in your experience brendan school is weird if you're talking about you know kids from the age of three or four to 15 18 25 whatever age you want to look at because it's so heavily tied in with our concepts of childhood and what should happen if you look at you know people in their 20s and 30s what they're doing and if they're in education anyway then it it would probably reflect the world a little bit more clearly because they're adults functioning in a world but studying i'm studying Mm -hmm. right now but i'm still living my life and my the way i study is integrated into what i what i do every day and it's abstracted somewhat but there's a lot of there's a lot of connections. I think it's much harder when you're working with children. First of all, they're developing 
in wild ways that <laughs> adults just aren't. You know, we're still growing as people, of course, but these kids are literally growing. Their brains are changing. Before your very eyes. <laughs> yeah, neurologically, they're they're in in the course of two years. They're not even. They're they're a totally different organism, and and we have some really ingrained ideas about how we raise kids and what the purpose of education is so that muddies the water of what we're trying to do in school so even if you did want to reflect what's happening in um let's say the global capitalist world and the mainstream uh, school you know in theory more or less reflects what's going on around. It's based on the same kind of ideas that when, you know, it, it's about uh, competition, but it's also about supporting each other to be a good team. It's also about setting goals and, and, and progress. So in that sense, school kind of mirrors the adult world. I mean, it also kind of doesn't because it's been abstracted to be its own thing. And this is one thing that Illich talks about, uh, the myths of school. And one of the myths he talks about is, that school sells school. The school is the only place where you can get the education mm-hmm. and school gives you the credentials. For me, that's what makes it more difficult because not only have you got developing kids and our ideas of how we should raise them, we've also got this abstracted version of the real world, which doesn't really integrate very often with the real world. Kids might go on some field trips. They might do some projects, but they're not necessarily in most cases doing meaningful work which is one of the ways in progressive education arguably is revolutionary in the sense that it does try to connect learning to kids needs and to where kids are and I do think that will become more because it it actually is more meaningful and it does help students to develop but that's not kind of where we are in the mainstream and so Mm, it's I won't go on much longer but other than to say it's complex and we've abstracted it and we've got to think about how we raise kids and if we look at those three aspects I think that's one of the ways we go forward how, how do we want to what do we believe about how kids should be raised what do we believe about what school should be and how it should connect to the world and then what do we do what do we believe about our world in general what should it be and having more conversations about that is one of the ways to move us forward, I think. Yeah. What was your take on that? that? So two things. One is perhaps a slightly negative or cynical thing, which I think Brendan was being very friendly with there. And then secondly, just some of our own biases, again, that we're bringing to this. So one, I would say, by and large, traditional and mainstream schools, and still to some degree, but a lesser degree, progressive schools, don't start from the community and then work inward to the school. Mm, yeah. yeah. School very much starts from the inside and at best makes a few little connections out to the larger world. But that school to me is very much a self-contained ecosystem or organism that in theory, in theory, you'll be hard pressed to find this, but in theory could have a kid from age of four or five straight through till 18 And that's their entire school experience could have no contact whatsoever with the outside community. And the kid would have met the school's expectations or could still graduate and all these things. So that's the more cynical part. 
that I would say, I think that's done by design or maybe not necessarily by design, but I think that's a function of one of the roles that schools play. So Brendan and I've kind of thrown this around a little bit in the last year, just saying schools at least 50 things. Mm. And it's really easy, especially as educators, especially as the people who are in the classrooms, to think that education or schooling is what's happening in the classroom. It is, you know, it's the resources or the activities I'm bringing. It's the culture and the communities we're developing in our room. It's, you know, the systems we're using to organize it. It's the excitement. It's the interest. It's all of these things that are happening in that room. That is totally true. But that's one of the 50 things. Uh -huh. You'd be delusional. And Brendan's made this point. I've just stolen it and repeated it more than he's ever said it now. But Brendan made the great point of like, hey, what happened a year ago during the first lockdown when schools worldwide closed their doors and we moved to online learning? Well, it certainly pointed out that education and our school system is also childcare that allows a capitalist system to function because you yeah. can't have your kids around you all day if you're going to get your work done. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. am I being cynical and reductionist just to say that school is only daycare and childcare? No, but we're now up to two things on the list of 50 things. And those are dramatically different things. And I think we spoke with professor David Labrie a few weeks ago and I need to get his exact quote, but it was something to the effect of like, there's so many stakeholders in the education system. And education is meeting enough of the people's needs, just enough that there's not going to be like a major revolution. I know he didn't use the word revolution, but it's sort of like enough people are having enough of their needs met that it's remaining in kind of a status quo. And I would say to a large degree, that's true because we can't narrow our definition of what school is down to just one of those things to say, oh, it's what's happening in the classroom only, which is what I know my tendency is to do. We can't do that and then actually think we can talk about reinventing education in the larger sense without acknowledging that there's 50 other things down the line that it is completely connected to and intertwined with. And we use this line a lot, but you know, you shake one twig in the entire forest moves like it is it you know at, at its core in most areas our education system is an expression of the political systems you know we we have actual ministers of education in almost every country worldwide influencing dictating negotiating what the education system will look like and it's in the hands of the party that's in power and you know, if you go back and listen to our David Labrie chat, it schools largely started in service of developing a nation's citizenry. And yeah. it started with a more citizen-based function and has moved over time into this more mainstream approach of being a way to generate capital in a capital right. system, merit, awards, well, we wouldn't use the term awards, but rather like, you know, grades, certifications, these sorts of things, so that the people can enter the, the workforce at the end of it. And it's like, what are the impacts of that shift in purpose over time? Something that started in, you know, Europe, 
Prussia that's still by and large leaving feudalism and the new approach to how we organize society is still kind of crystallizing. And Prussia went all in and said, hey, everyone's going to get training from the government for a few years early on. And that worked out really well. And within 100 years, every other country in the world said, yeah, we're going to try this too. And it's unprecedented. This hasn't happened in human history before. This is brand yeah. new that every country would think that every citizen should have an education provided to them, at least to have the option of it be free of charge from the government. So I'm off on a few yeah. tangents there, but that's one thing, just again, oh, going yeah. back to Brendan's point of the, the complexity that it exists yeah. within. So if you look back and reflect on school as it is, and now, you know, we've said it a few times, you know, 90 plus percent of the schools you'll see around are mainstream and even the more traditional and many of the progressives, the IB style schools are still heavily indebted to the mainstream. This kind of planned curriculum that sets goals and gets you to get credentials that you can then use in the global capitalist market. And child is object. Huh, there's there's some of that, and people are data, and, and this is a filtration system, and, and somewhat mechanistic, and it has a heart too. And the, you know the people that work in it care about their students yeah. absolutely. You know, I was in that system, and we talk a lot about progressive schools, and if you look at the wider system, those kind of traditional villages with the with the guilds and the apprenticeship model that we've kind of said the master and apprentice that fit well into a feudal society and then there's this uneasy kind of move into a post-industrial capitalist kind of society and the mainstream school arguably works pretty well for that model that's why i I kind of skeptical about the chances that progressive education has and it had its heyday in the 30s with Dewey and, 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 and that kind of first wave. And then arguably, again, it came back in the 60s and 70s following the kind of like cultural revolutions and uh, whatever you want to call them with the, the, the massive cultural shift of the late 60s and into the 70s. And then, of course, they were swept away again, but because the mainstream once again kind of reared its head. I, I, we haven't had a lot of chance to talk about this, but I think as we talk about more progressive schools, the world isn't really set up yet for progressive schools. I would love it to be because that's where my that's where my passions and education kind of veer towards humans as individuals who all have a, a way to pursue their own dreams and their own uh, projects and their own ideas and then bring it together to help everybody. But, yeah. you know, we're, we're not there yet. And so I think if you are in a progressive school, you're actually fighting against the the massive status quo. He talked to anyone who works in a progressive leaning school. You can put yourself in that little bubble. And as the kids are younger, it's easier as the kids get older. And as that bubble encroaches closer and closer into the world, it's about holding on to that stuff. And, and just the way you talk about having to hold on to that kind of progressive mindset as you enter the rest of the world, that already shows you that the rest of the world isn't in that place. And that doesn't mean it's terrible, but it's not. It's a different mindset. Be a progressive school. Most governments will allow you to do that, either publicly or privately as a school. But at the end of the day, either you only get to keep your license if every two years your kids meet a certain level of achievement on the standardized test, or yeah, yeah. at the end of the day, 
great, you've done whatever your school has approached in school. Hey, there's college entrance exams or SAT tests or all these things, which are still arguably very central to like a more mainstream mindset. So it's like, okay, cool. You can carry this out in a progressive way, but you're only going to be allowed to do that as long as you're still ticking all of the mainstream boxes. And I think until that mainstream system shifts more into something like, let's say, this isn't the only answer, but one example could be more universities are moving over to a more portfolio-based application process. But obviously that takes a lot more time than, I know this isn't how it's done, but putting everyone's names and their scores onto an Excel chart and then sorting by highest number first. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. if we are going to make moves towards more progressive education, then the system around it needs to change in such a way that progressive is a better fit. And I know we try to kind of veer away from explicitly talking about spiral dynamics here on the program, but one of the central tenets of spiral dynamics, it's basically saying, hey, humans adapt strategies based on living conditions. And I feel like education is one of these strange places where we're saying, well, our living conditions are still very orange, but we'd like this strategy to be green or beyond. Like we'd like this progressive approach and we can see the merit and what that way of being can offer. But at the end of the day, the living conditions we're in aren't actually a great match for that. And arguably just doing really effective orange, really effective mainstream schooling might be the better fit for now. For now. But I mean, this is the point, isn't it? You know, we started off saying the world is changing, you know, like the spiral says, you know, yeah, when these life conditions change and they seem to certainly be changing perhaps we're always you know constantly human beings in a state of turmoil and change but you know if we if you kind of open your eyes and your ears and your heart to what's going on in the world you know with with the 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 climate crisis with you know the interminable middle east crisis you know which is erupting again you know kids young people have got have got questions about this and they want to want want resources and want um you know, ways in to understand and make sense of this. And are we are we picking up enough data in our schools from those students, from those children? You know, that's one of the bugbears I've always had, you know, in the the sort of more traditional model that I experience, where you 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 kind of like the postbox uh, metaphor, you know, you list a postbox to to have stuff posted in until you you know, you're full to bursting and then you just kind of regurgitate it, whatever, post it back. Are we are we really invested enough in getting data from the living human beings um, that, are, that are emerging in this critical period of, of the planet's uh, journey and the human journey itself? You know, is that something that perhaps we're, we're missing out, not engaging enough? with what is going on in the hearts and minds and the interiors of kids. So, you know, we could be guilty of just kind of continuing a system that then only keeps repeating the same world outside, you know, rather than producing children who've got, who've got credentials and, and talents and have woken up to a certain extent to, to engage in that world with, with different, you know, that, with different in a different way that could bring about the change that we're looking for 
it, it's a it's a chicken and egg kind of kind of situation, isn't it? Well, I'd say it's more it's more <clears> that we've talked a little bit about the quadrants, and I know um, this is going back into the integral theory, and Rob knows a lot more uh, about this than I did, but the reason why we looked at those four quadrants is they're basically looking at the interiors and exteriors of the group and the individual. We talked a little bit about it's only going to work if those four are in balance. And so if you are a person, we talked about this idea of the hacker. I think Rob brought this idea in. The hacker is someone who's in a school where maybe it isn't fully aligned with their their philosophy and their practices, but they're bringing something into it. So you might be a progressive educator coming into a mainstream school and really trying to hack that system and make it better. But of course, you're fighting against the system there. Mm -hmm. um, on the other side, the system might be much more progressive inside the school. But as you said, it might be fighting against a bigger system or there could be a bunch of people inside the school that don't fully agree with it. So I think, first of all, getting that condition for success we talked to a guy called chris Baum a while back who talked about how hard it was to find educators and getting them train them up and get them in the wow. classroom and i know from finding ib educators it's hard to get uh, really experienced and re educators who have not only the skills but also the mindset to lead inquiry so i think setting up your school that has a wider community and a local community and a bunch of staff and uh, leadership who all believe in that and being able to do it on an individual level, having parents who bought into it. So first of all, those conditions for success and then somehow building a system that isn't, you aren't torn away from doing it because we've all been in the classroom were, were I can only speak myself on this, but I'm sure you've experienced this to some degree where what you're being asked to do or at least you feel from these external pressures you have to do is pulling you away from what you want to do and what you think is right for the kids and um, I think the further you move away from those progressive schools and into the mainstream and the traditional if you are a progressive educator, and I'm using that to describe more or less what you described earlier of the educator who's trying to read the humans in front of them and, and interact with them. Um, and maybe this is where that kind of more integral fourth stage that we haven't talked about too much comes in. But yeah, if you are this progressive educator that's trying to work with each individual human where they are at and where they're going, there's so many things working against you right now that I think a lot of people give up hope on that. I'm an eternal optimist. And I, I don't think I will, but you know, I keep going. I keep plugging away. One one other way. One other way I would take it though is just like in terms of you know what's your experience of kids having, you know, being given or taking responsibility for certain you know aspects of 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 their experience at school. You know, surely you know, again, something that, that can develop and become, you know, bigger levels of responsibility, perhaps bigger levels of complexity as they get older. But, you know, I think this, this for me is what's always, always missing, you know, is, is, you know, to really feel, yeah, you, you give them responsibility for, and then they feed back into the system that they're part, they're a crucial part of. So, it, it, you know, it's this, it's this feedback loop, perhaps, that's often not really fully engaged. And couldn't that at any level, you know, traditional, mainstream or progressive, couldn't that be something that could be done within those, those particular models, Rob? 
Yeah. Or again, I'm just too idealistic. (laughs) No, well, yeah. First, I'll totally crap on that. And then I'll come back and say I'm on your side. In the Enneagram world, I'm a nine with a one wing, which is often called the dreamer. And I think part of me getting into education was me coming with very lofty and dreamer like ideas of, oh, let's reimagine this thing. And, you know, this will be, this, this has so much possible potential. This has so much untapped possible potential. You're telling me that someone's going to you know, spend a huge chunk of their childhood as like a developmental incubator for years. Think of what could be possible with all of this yeah. time, all of these resources, all of these people. And then you get into it and it's like, Jesus, this is nothing like <laughs> what I thought it would be like. And what I do want to bring is like, I don't know, self-critical, self-aware here. I had shared this last week at the Integral European Conference. I said, you know, people who might have a whatever you want to call it, teal leaning, integral leaning, whatever perspective, we have a filter that we pass everything through. You know, maybe we can be slightly critical and say, oh, those traditional people, it's all about security. That's what they're doing. And mainstream, it's all, it's all about progress and achievement. And, you know, progressive green, it's all, you know, inclusion and, you know, the the harmony of the group and all these kinds of things and everyone's well-being. And it's like, you know, they're, they're always in the way of us seeing how things could develop and touch into untapped potential. And it's like, you know, we do have to check ourselves or rather I should say, I've been trying to check myself more to say, well, of course, I'm going to bring a bias towards this. Of mm-hmm. course, I'm going to put everything through a developmental lens when I'm looking at this. And of course, I'm going to see, you know, I've got that one wing, like I can see where we're falling short on what this could be. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be one of the biases that I bring into every conversation we have on this podcast and every meeting I have in the school. And every time I sit back on my lofty chair and criticize traditional things I see going on or unhealthy mainstream or unhealthy progressive. But at the end of the day, you know, I got to check myself because of course, part of me wants to say, but of course, the developmental perspective is like the best and most inclusive one. And it's like, well, yeah, that, that's but... not really that doesn't sound so much teal to me. You know, that still sounds sounds, you know, first tier mm-hmm. because, because I mean, the, you know, the, the second tier is is allowing for all of that kind of complexity and different perspectives and trying to you know, have a more of a flex flow approach, which, which I get, you know, I pick up a lot from the conversations that you guys have on your podcast and the interviews that you do, you know, I, I can recognize, yeah, the frustration of being within a system, perhaps a mainstream system where you can, you know, you feel <clears throat> that you want to open your wings and, and, you know, fly a little bit more with the agenda, but, but you're held back, you're pinned back by, by the, you know, the, the infrastructure, whatever, but generally, you know, the conversation and, and you know, like Brendan working with the, the teachers to develop curriculum, et cetera. I mean, it seems that you, you know, you very much are thinking from second tier, not to judge, not to compartmentalize people because of the views and the positions that they're bringing. But see how what, what an interesting blend you can you can bring with sure. this you know, coming from this higher perspective, huh? Yeah, which, you know I, mean? so which I, I'd say on a good day, okay. on a good day, <laughs> we're able to walk into yeah. school and, and operate that way. I think where my, where my point was more coming from was not so much the, 
the criticizing of the other kinds of school, but just more that, of course, I'm going to filter things through a developmental lens of seeing these as developmental stages or always having a bias towards like, well, can we get up a little bit higher? Can we not be held down by unnecessary garbage that's keeping us where we are? Can we clean up, show up, tidy up that kind of thing to like, to allow something more possible here. And then what I would say, Malcolm, to kind of answer the tail end of your question, if I remember where it was that I started on this, I almost want to open up an invitation to you and to others in terms of addressing that complexity you're talking about. So Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to use a large term like, you know, often we hear in education like, oh, the skills for the 21st century or you know, variations of the world is this chaotic, complex, the VUCA thing. It's volatile, it's uncertain, complex, it's ambiguous, all of this. I almost want to take that and distill it down to say, okay, so what forces are we talking about that are active here? Can we take all of this and actually distill down what we think is important to be focused on? Here. Yeah. Is there a, a meta move, an integral move that we can take to talk about like what might be a good starter kit for someone entering the world these days? And, you know, part of that comes first to like, do we have agreement on the kind of world we're talking about that people are entering yeah. Yeah. and not just globally, also our local context as well. And then down to the level of the individual. And I'd add to that not only what's good for you down the road, what will you need when you're 20 and or 30 and out there in this crazy world, but what do you need now as a seven-year-old? What could help you be the widest or whatever word you want to use, the widest expression of being seven and not just simply yeah. see seven as like, well, the real you's coming down the the line and we're going to get you to the more grown-up version. Like, how do we also just fully appreciate the current developmental place of a child and help them to be the fullest expression of what they are and who they are now? So for me, I, I would want to tie that back together and have both of those things, if I can have my cake and eat it too, like... Yes. What's the thing to get you ready for after this? Because for sure that's part of this. But also let's not do a disservice to who you are now with Mm. this idea that it's the later you that matters more than the now you. Well, I mean, already, isn't it? It's clear that in education, you can't get away from the fact, you know, people see it, whatever kind of, whatever they're coming from on the spiral that you know, children start off school at a certain stage of development and, and brain functioning or whatever, and they're going to progress to another level of complexity. I mean, you might not use those particular terms, but you, you see there is a trajectory of growth. I mean, isn't, you know, this again, coming back to how useful the, the integral framework is as a resource for, the, for these times is, is just to make that point even more clearly that, yes, we are in a world in which, you know, different values and and levels of development, you know, are are coming online, emerging, et cetera, transcending and including. And 
you know, that I think that's integral to any kind of concept of school, wherever they're coming from. But perhaps what is not yet coming online is this idea that it's also happening in on the interior. And it would it be such a huge leap to start to show or start to switch people on? I mean, and it, it is happening in the in the big wide world, isn't it? People are being switched on more to the you know, the, 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 the wellness notions, the, the idea of me- how important mental health is, how important it is to be able to challenge, you know, dogma and, and racism and, and help people, de- help children, young people develop different perspectives. So is it, you know, it, it's happening. It's perhaps just the conversation is a little bit messy because it's not being perhaps framed in a, in a clear enough way. This gets into that fourth stage, the integral stage or the one that we can't really pin down very well. And we thought at the beginning that we had it. And then we realized we didn't have it because you might know that there's a progressive, a mainstream and a traditional mindset and a set of actions. And you might know that this integral stage is about using the right blend in in the right context and we talked early on a lot about the dials we turn up the dials for and that analogy kind of works but the thing that struck me in terror at one point was that I have no idea what those dials should be turned to (laughs) so it's like okay I can I understand that these these three mindsets and we already massively oversimplified the universe into three mindsets and then we've said okay let's make them one or two dials in different areas. What resources do we have? What, what, how do we interact with each other? And it's like, I got my hands on the dials and I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it's like, so this is the, the thing that I think we go back to Brad Kirshner a lot uh, recently because he got his, he kind of gave not an answer to that, but at least a perspective on it. It's like, well, you'll only know by building those relationships. The dials kind of still exist, but it's kind of, you're in there day after day, talking to people, working with people, and then you're slightly adjusting the dials. This is what's going on in my mind. You're slightly adjusting the dials and course correcting. And that made me feel a bit calmer, you know? So that's why I'm sitting there talking to my, my boss about the action plans and the best laid plans of mice and men, of course. But, you know, talking about some plans and talking to people done a lot more work with parents this year. You know, we started coffee mornings and uh, that's what David Labrie talked a lot about getting into the community. And that's the way you kind of get your power back to some degree away from the political football and back into what you can do. And I is think that, is that an important feedback loop as well, potentially uh, from parents? Yeah. I mean, it, it has to be, it? they're the biggest yeah, influence yeah. on the kids in your classroom until teenagers yeah. uh, get their peer groups who arguably have a, as strong an influence in some ways, but basically they're the biggest influence. I talked to my friend once a few years ago and I was like, you know, you know, I talked to the kids, parents at parents evening and you know exactly what's going on with the kid. And he was surprised. He's like, oh, the parents that much of an influence. I'm like, they're the only influence for it. Like they're 90% of the influence genetically and culturally on your, on the people in your classroom. So absolutely. And if you're in a private school where they're actually paying money as well, it just complicates that even further. But 
No, working with everybody, every single person that you come into contact with and opening the door for people that you're not in contact with, actually going out there and bringing other people in and being aware of all that. Uh, mm. Yeah. And what, and what are the ways to do that with, with um, students, with, with children, with young people to make them also part of this feedback loop? You know, and again, I'm not saying it doesn't, it's not going to happen in the same way that it happens with, with adults, you know, with parents, there are more, you know, more creative, more ingenious ways to actually get, get the fit, get children involved in, in this feedback loop. I mean, is that something so, so difficult to, to, to bring about, you know, is there, is there a kind of complete blind spot with, with education systems that, that don't um, appreciate the, the wealth of, of riches that, that could be, um, brought online with with engaging children or giving children the sense in which you know their thoughts their experiences uh, also count their feedback is also something um, that that's part of the part of the pot I, what do you think I would about- argue that from all three of our types of school all three of them would say they are doing that all three okay. of them are including the child's voice but that looks how are they doing and- it in your school well, I'll, I'll go abstract and then I'll okay, go concrete okay. on that. But I think if you talk to a traditional teacher and say, oh, you know, how do you, do you bring the student's voice? Like a, a traditional, we might say, oh, a traditional teacher does very little of that. But you talk to them, okay. they don't see it that way. Yeah, They yeah, just don't yeah. see it the way you see it. And you talk to a mainstream teacher, a progressive teacher, all of them will say, we include the student's voice. And probably all of them will say, we could do it more. And have a few ideas for how they could do it more. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find a teacher who says, no, no, I, d- I don't include the student's voice, but it's just going sure, to look sure. dramatically different and be defined completely different. And arguably you could take a traditional teacher and a mainstream teacher and the two of them would duke it out saying, you're not taking the child's perspective. Like, you know, from between each other, they could see it differently perhaps. You could, you could argue that that you could if you brought it to the point in what way does that does that child involvement influence policy yeah it might be a bit more hard pressed to to answer that don't you think so well i think the way i'd flip the question is just to say not can we include student voice but how do we include student voice or student yeah, feedback yeah. in our school and i think that's probably the more functional question like Okay, we can yeah. talk to the kids about anything, but what will we do with that? And, you know, yeah. where, like, how will we do this? Well, like, where is it most important to have student feedback on things? Is it everything? Mm-hmm. Or is it a few areas? You know, where, where, where is the circle of influence that students can have within our school? Because I, well, I, that is present yeah. across all three, but all three are going to have very different ideas about that. Yeah. And you know yeah. what I what I would say, bringing back the parents and the relationships thing, and I'll address like in my own school as well here. Yeah, I think Brad Kirshner, he really emphasized the importance of relationships for us, and I think that was a big piece for Brendan and I because you know, Brendan and mm-hmm. I can walk in with this map we're talking about, and we can see a. We can smell a traditional teacher from a mile away and we've got the, we've got the quadrants and we've got a pretty intuitive sense of like where the systems are at and the actions and the cultures and communities and all this stuff. 
at the end of the day, you're just impotent if you can't talk to someone and connect with them. Yeah, it's like yeah. this map goes to absolute waste and is not going to be functional or a fit yeah, yeah. if you can't connect yeah. with someone else. And you're not yeah. going to grow oh, no. anything yeah. in your yeah. school if you don't have people on your side. And whether that's because you can find a way to already agree on something or you can skillfully and caringly negotiate and debate until you get to a place that is mutually shared. And, you know, I think this year, for sure, for myself professionally, that's been my biggest leap in terms of development is like, okay, there's a few of you around here that we're totally on the same page. If a few of you were close and a few of you were nowhere near each other in terms of beliefs, mm -hmm. practices, mm -hmm. these kinds of things. And it's like, so what's the best fit here? Like, what makes sense here? Let's mm -hmm. start with you guys who we, you know, we're nowhere near each other. Just like, hey, what, what makes sense in our school? Can we find some common ground on just what we think makes sense fundamentally? And then can we, mm. you know, piece by piece build on that and build out from there? And we presented this three types of school model to our entire staff. We've presented it now as of a week or so ago to our parent body as well and had a really Great. lively yeah. Q&A session with them afterward. Great. And we've presented it to the student council, unfortunately, all these crazy COVID things keep preventing us from presenting it to the entire student body, but it's at least been presented to the student council. And again, had a great, really interactive Q and a with them afterwards of them fleshing this out. And nice. it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Now I won't pretend like everybody has been like, this is the most interesting thing. They're not bringing, not everyone's bringing the same level of zeal perhaps that we are. Um, and that's interesting in itself to see that just these great ideas don't necessarily ignite with everyone. But a few people have said, oh, this really, the parents especially said, this has acted as a Rosetta Stone for us. Because we knew, yeah. we kind of mm. knew this. Yeah, we, yeah. We've been in two or three other schools or five other schools at this point. You know, we kind of knew they weren't the same. We kind of <laughs> knew something was fundamentally different. But now, now I get this. And what's most now we interesting, have a color for it. Yeah, yeah. Now we have a color for the differences. We have yeah. a handy little tag we can put on these things. <laughs> and what's interesting yeah. is the parents and the schools reported differently what kind of school we see ourselves as. So wow. it's like wow. if you're going to have a school in isolation, make all of its own decisions, and it sees itself as one thing, but the entire, you know, it's like me showing up being like, Hey, Malcolm Brennan, did you know I'm like the funniest guy? It's like, well, the only way to test that is, can I make the two of you laugh? <laughs> and if we're sitting here for an hour and at the end, I'm still telling you I'm the funniest guy and you haven't laughed at anything I've said and you find me annoying. It's like, oh, you need the cues and the checks from other people to see if what you're yeah. saying is actually true. And I think the same is within a school, whether a school sees itself as traditional, mainstream or progressive, there's a very good chance that the people around it, students, parents, larger community, might not see you the same way and might see well, you as something I mean, else. That, and that's important feedback. That's really fascinating, isn't it? You know, I mean, yeah, that's that because, you know, if parents are having a different vision of what's going on in the school than what people within the school are, are, are feeling, then to, to, 
to take that conversation to the next level. Well, how can we find some coherence here? You know, maybe they're seeing something that we're, you know, we're so immersed in it. We're not, we're not able to see, but actually trying to see it from their perspective. Oh, actually, yeah, that's a component that we didn't, perhaps, you know, we could, we could develop more or we could make more of or something like that. But the same with students and children, if that conversation is opened up as well in some kind of way, it's, it's going to, you know, to mean that, you know, the, the, the sense I'm picking up is that we feel like, from the second tier or from the post-progressive, we've got to have it all mapped out, all worked out, you know, that somehow this, this vision is just going to, you know, emerge from that level of consciousness. But no, it comes in, like you've just been saying, it comes through relationship. It comes through conversation. And if we're not setting up the opportunities for those conversations to be had, nothing, nothing, no clarity or coherence perhaps emerges here. It's such a big part of, what the future is calling for in a sense it, it it's there in the air it just needs to be embodied in conversation and in relationship brendan what do you think does that make sense to you i think you've just said what i was going to say that is <laughs> oh, the great. only way that makes sense is if it's the beginning of a conversation and right. uh, i think that might be a good time to wrap up this conversation okay, okay. because it's been fantastic with lots and lots of twists and turns. And I'd love to do a part two or a part three, if you want to call it soon, but it, it has to be the beginning of a conversation with as many people as possible and with open minds for where we go, but with the same aim of supporting the kids education. Great. You know, I mean, that was one thing I was sort of bumbling on about a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it about this, this idea of a, you know, integral education forum, perhaps in 2023, to bring together people who want to be part of this conversation, who perhaps not had the chance yet to 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 put their pennyworth in, and um, you know, within the framework that that you guys are building, you know, that that people can find their their space, find their means of connecting to the bigger picture. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, definitely, yeah, we should thank we you. Should do a part two. You know, yeah, I'm totally up yeah. for it. Thank Great you. questions. Thank you very much. Great questions. Let's definitely do it again. And yeah. you asked at the beginning why it was good. And I think it, the more we talk, the more we can uh, gel our ideas together. It's really, really helpful. That was a conversation with myself, as well as Malcolm Giles and Brendan O'Leary. At the end of that conversation, Malcolm, Brendan, and myself wish to continue things further and in about two episodes from now, you're going to hear a follow-up to that conversation as we continue to dive a little bit deeper and get into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts and some of the, you know, smaller scale, more local things that Brennan and I have been doing in our own classrooms. So thank you very much, Malcolm. We appreciated the opportunity to chat with you. If you're out there listening to us and you're interested in contacting Brendan and I for a chat, a conversation, some kind of connection, or to tell us about someone who's doing something really incredible in terms of education, please reach out to us at reinventingeducationpodcast at gmail.com. Email works best. That email address is all one word. Yes, it's a huge email address, sorry. But reinventingeducationpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.